If you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25, and as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. So again, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people. Thank you for uh, just this moment to where uh, we can hear from you again. Lord, thank you for your word that you would communicate to us that we don't run in the dark wondering if you're there and wondering what you want from us and wondering how we can be right with you. You've given us your word and it's plain and it's clear. Glorious and it's complex and mysterious and it's also plain and clear and straightforward. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit now in these next moments together. Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and do the work that only he can do of opening our eyes to those dark corners of our hearts that we need to repent of. Giving us eyes to see you with faith and trust. Encouraging us where we're discouraged. Lord, I pray that he would come and do that work today and that all of us would walk out of this room more conformed into your image. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, I was very hesitant uh, to admit to my extended family that uh, we spent money purchasing a dog. We have a designer dog. We have a doodle. Uh, the Caswells did not spend money on dogs. Uh, my father grew up out in the country on a ranch. My mother grew up on a farm. Uh, so we, we did have dogs. They were a series of were running around the streets of Denton. Um, or we would go to the pound and we would get a, a dog for free with the emphasis on free. Uh, we also, we did have dogs, but there were clear rules in the Caswell house on dogs. One of them was the dogs were outside. Uh, they were not inside on furniture. Uh, there was discipline, and discipline was a, a rolled up newspaper. Uh, that was such an old man uh, move with your dogs. Uh, they did have a debate one time about should we spend money on dog food. Now, before you panic, what that meant was is like they grew up just like the scraps from the table. So the idea that you would spend any money on a dog uh, was a little bit out of the box for them. And so I was hesitant to admit that we spent money on Gracie. Now they did buy into the, well, my wife and my son, you know, they're allergic to pet hair and she doesn't shed. Okay, they were there. Uh, but what we never admitted was the fact uh, that we actually not only spent money on the dog, we spent money on a dog trainer. Um, and so uh, this, we had a wonderful dog trainer, but something happened in my life, transformative, from the not Gracie till we had the dog trainer. I went from uh, the dad that squashed getting the dog for years to my poor children, and my go-to was the baseboards. The dog, we're not getting a dog because the dog will mess up the baseboards, and so that was my, my go-to. So somewhere in between, you know, my sacred baseboards, uh, to the dog trainer, um, I had a really dramatic transformation where I became like the biggest like animal lover, just softy for pets. And I mean, I, I went from like, yeah, Second Amendment to I think I need to be a vegetarian. Like that happened in like <laughs> three months. It happened very fast. So when Kristen explained the dog trainers coming and okay, the way the dog trains is with the shock collar. 
I, that, was a, that was hard for me, okay? And Kristen was very, very kind in this, okay? She was very patient. I said, we well, can't shock the dog. I would love the dog. This is my baby. All these things. And then it was something to the effect of it's, it's me, either me or the puppy. And so the trainer came, and she did something very wise. Uh, she shocked me. Um, now, that doesn't, that's not as bad as it sounds, okay? She didn't sneak up behind me with the collar. Um, what she did was very wise. She said, put the shock collar in your hand, and then you push the button. Now, turn it up a little bit. You push the button again. And so what I learned was is the shock collar does not hurt the dog, okay? Now, the shock collar does not tickle the dog. The shock collar does, it is uncomfortable to the dog. The point of the shock collar is to get the dog's attention, okay? You're jumping on someone. You do not need to jump on someone, so down, you know, and that's so it, it, the intention of the shock collar is to change behavior. It doesn't hurt her, okay? Am I clear on this? It doesn't hurt the dog. It's uncomfortable, but the purpose of it is to help change, to get her attention in order to change. That's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is all about. It's one of these verses that it's not meant to hurt you, it's not necessarily comfortable, but it's meant to help you change and line your life up with God's intention for your life. If you weren't with us last week, we're in this moment in the book of Hebrews where there's a transition going on. Up to this point, in all these chapters, we've been kind of wading out into the deep water of really rich, deep, theoretical Christology. Like we've waded into the deep waters, okay? And now there's this shift to application. It's going from indicative to imperative. It's turning from these really profound gospel truths to, okay, what does this mean practically for your life? And if you remember from last week, we, we were told to remember something. He took us back to, in many ways, kind of a summary of the entire book. Uh, and so we're to remember the blood of Christ, and then he gives us three imperatives. Uh, look again with me at verses 19, 20, and 21. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then he goes into these three commands, these three imperatives. But what we're supposed to see here first from verse 19 is we're supposed to remember that all of this is through the blood of Christ. Or we're to remember the blood of Christ. We're to remember that this theology that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that's tempting you to fall away. He, he, is, he is so much better than this Old Testament sacrifice. He's better than this old way to God. He's torn open the curtain. He's the better sacrifice. He's created a better way. The old covenant has been replaced with something new, and that something new is better. The, the, the curtain to the presence of God has been torn open, and so we're to remember the blood of Christ. And then, we're to, then we have these three imperatives, these three things that we're supposed to do, if you will, based upon remembering that. Number one, we're to draw near, and number two, we're to hold fast. So, in other words, Jesus did not die for you to live according to your fleshly desires. He died so that you could be conformed into the image of Christ. And this specifically means that he died so that you would draw near to him and that you would hold fast to him. So, instead of using the truth that we're covered by the blood of Christ to run away from him, we're supposed to use that truth to then draw closer to him. So, when we sin, we're not supposed to run away, we're supposed to run to him. 
When we're suffering, we're not supposed to go further away from Him. We're supposed to draw near to Him. And, and instead of using the truth that His blood atones for our sin to let go of faithfully following Him, we're supposed to cling tighter to Him. So, so we're not uh, to allow these maybe complex objections or, or these unanswerable questions to cause us to abandon our faith. There, there's always going to be questions you're not going to be able to answer. There's always going to be some deeper theology to discover. There's always going to be hard teachings that you're going to have to embrace. But all of those are not meant to cause us to go further away. They're, they're, ca- they're to cause us to, to hold fast as those waves of the world crash against us. Well, today we're going to look at the third imperative. We've seen to, that we're to draw near and to hold fast. And now we're going to see this third command to stir up one another. So in other words, based upon the sacrificial blood of Christ, we're to stir up one another. Well, what does that mean? Well, God is telling us to stir up one another to love, to good works, to gather with encouragement because the day is near. Look with me at Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're to spur one another to love. A shock collar, but I could, have, I could have talked about a spur. We're all Texans, so we all have horses, and we all wear boots and spurs to the grocery store, right? Amen? <laughs> now, we have a lot of West Coast people moving to the great state of Texas today. So if you're from, like, Oregon, let me explain what a spur is. You wear the spur on the boot, right? And the intention is, is as you're riding the horse and you want the horse to change what it's doing, you spur the horse. Now, if you think that's horrible, done right, it doesn't hurt the horse, okay? Done correctly, it's to get like the shot collar. It's to get the horse's attention to where if the horse is walking and you want the horse to trot, then the horse starts trotting. That, that, that's the image of what's going on here with stir up one another. We're, we're to do something, not, not to hurt each other, Sometimes it's uncomfortable, though, but we're to do it in such a way to help us change. It's meant to get our attention so that we can change. And in a similar way, God calls Christians not to just make a profession of faith and then go on living however we want. Rather, He has saved you, and again, by the, by the pain of shedding His own blood, He has saved you in order for you to live in community. That's what he bought you for with his blood, is for you to live in community. Now that sounds, sounds I think, very theoretically and just uber spiritual and, and, and very beautiful in this kind of clean plastic way. But, but, but how? How do we live in community? Well, I think Hebrews 10.24's answer is, is to stir up one another. Now, many times I think Christians don't stir up one another because they don't know anyone well enough to stir them up. Are you with me? Like this is a, let's be clear here, this is plain, clear teaching of Scripture. Stir up one another to love and good works. But, but sometimes we don't even know anybody well enough to stir them up. Our, our church has been growing rapidly for the last year and a half, and we're so thankful for it, we're excited about it. But one of the things that I pray against as we grow is that we don't have folks that just kind of roll in Maybe get a little like encouraging nugget from the Lord and hear some inspiring music and then just kind of roll out and don't really know anybody. And that that's just kind of the extent of their church experience here. Like if you're there, I want you to know that God has something so much better for you. He has something so much better 
than, than kind of this really clean, safe, just kind of in and out. I'm not going to know anybody. I don't want to know their junk. I don't want them to know my junk. He's offering us something so much better. He wants you to be known, and He wants you to know others. And if you're new, know that that doesn't happen overnight, okay? So if like you've been here two weeks and you haven't made your best friend yet, and then you come to me and you're like, well, I don't have any really good community, so I'm out. I'm going to bounce to the next church. Honey, it, it just takes more time. Are you with me? It just takes more time. And if you're a young person, and, and maybe you have the expectation that like everybody's just going to be so excited you're here and come around you and like you're the greatest thing ever and they just want to know you like that really doesn't happen either like you have to be intentional to be here okay maybe there was a day college students that you like showed up at college and then like 40 different churches and Christian ministries swarmed you if you're a college student today you know that doesn't happen right like you have to be intentional to develop community but in the end, God is calling you to know people and know people well enough that you stir them up. Well, what are we spurring them to do? Well, there's really five things here, but the first one is love. You see, it's, it's not fun to shock people or to uh, spur people or to stir up one another. But love hangs in the balance there. This is so important to God that you be loved, that He created the church to help you be more loving. He, he, he loves you so much, He wants you to help love other people. The, the term here, and some of you know these Greek terms, but this is the agapeo love. This is the Greek term that He uses here. This is this unconditional love. It, it's, it's a heartfelt love. It, it comes from the inside, where, where you from the, from the inside, you, you have these heartfelt desires uh, for someone's good. Like, like you, you wish them well. You, you desire good things for you. You see, you're not called only to, uh, to love others. You're actually called here to help one another love each other. Do you see that? Like you're not just called, okay, go love people. You're to love people in a way that you help them love people. Like that's how much God cares about this. And, and friends, again, the, the one another's I think sounds so spiritual. But, but what, what does this mean for you to know people well enough that, that you see them being unloving and then in turn you love them enough to help them love them better? What, what does that look like? You see, if no one knows your name, and you don't know anybody else's name. Friend, you, you can't even come close to living this, this admonition out. You see, if you believe Jesus' blood atoned for your sins, then brother, I'm excited to see you in heaven. But for now, you have a job to help other people love better. You see, I need your help, and you need my help. Like, like we're to live in community in such a way. This is what Jesus, uh, this is why Jesus shed his blood. For you to live in Christian community, to, to, to really be part of a church where you stir up people to love. But there's a, a second one here. You were to spur one another or stir one another up also to good works. If you've been around here very long, you know that we have this phrase that's kind of cultural with us of broken people loving broken people. And we, we really love that phrase. And where we get that is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And in that passage, it talks about God's grace for us. That we've been saved by His grace. Which means that when we deserved judgment, He gave us mercy. But we, we didn't earn our way up into heaven. Now, many times people who really understand that, and, and I have been in this category at different points in my life, but when you really understand God's grace, you really appreciate God's grace, you quickly kind of make the connection that, hey, God 
grace is so good, I can't out God's grace. Amen? Like when I sin, just a wave of grace just comes and covers me. Now, in our best moments, that leads to worship, doesn't it? But in our worst moments, where does that go? Maybe I can do whatever I want. Maybe God's grace means that I can just go on sinning and do whatever I want. That's totally inconsistent with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Because at the end of that, the purpose of that grace is uh, for, for you to walk, uh, in, to walk in good works. You see, He has saved you for good works. This is consistent with uh, uh, Romans 8 at the end, where it says God has predestined you to something. What has He predestined you to? To be conformed to the image of His Son. God is always working in your life to make you look more like Jesus. God doesn't care if you're a millionaire. God doesn't care that, that you live to 100 years old and never have health problems. That, that's not his primary concern for you. His primary concern for you is, is for you to look increasingly like Jesus. His grace in your life is to help you become more and more holy as he is holy. That, that's where he's trying to take you. That's how he's trying to work in your life. But, but, but Hebrews 10.24 is not ultimately calling us as individuals to be holy. That's certainly there. But, but rather, he's calling you to live in church community in such a way that you help other people be holy. That you help other people carry out the good works that they have. Let me say it this way. Men, if you're in your, if you're in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, are there guys in this church, in this room, who are in their 20s and 30s, that you're helping be more holy, that you're helping carry out more good works. Now, hear me, it, it's going to require you to be here more weeks than not to do that. It's going to require you to slip in late, not talk to anybody, quickly slip out and then never talk to anybody. It, it's going to require you to invest time in a small group. It's going to require you to invest time in a men's group. It's going to require a lot of prayer, it's going to be uncomfortable at times. But friends, you're here to be loved and equipped. But you're also here to help others be loved and equipped. Do you see that in the text? Are you seeing your role in this body? You see, you're here to help others live lives marked by good works. And, and, and I know, I know that maybe you haven't experienced that. Like I know maybe no one has ever loved you enough to spur you on to good works. There's a lot of church hurt in this room, and I, and I understand that. And I'm sorry that that church or this church has failed you in that way. However, do you have a history of loving others enough to stir them on to good works? There's a third uh, admonition here, is to stir up one another to gather. Look at verse 25. He says that we are not to neglect to meet together. You, you see, you can't stir up one another if you're not gathering. We're coming out of the virtual church and you know, we're streaming, which I, which I think is helpful and good and fine. But, but virtual church leads to isolated, lonely Christians who drift away to unloving, unholy lives. That's just what it is all telling us. That's what it's all showing. Now listen, if you, there are valid reasons to just engage in virtual church for a season, okay? I'm not saying otherwise. But, and, and, and hear me on this, meeting together is messy, all right? Um, no, I'm glad no one amened on that, but, that's, but, but you could amen on that. Meeting together is messy, right? 
Meeting together is hard. You're, you're, you're not going to like everyone, okay? Now, as you're thinking of people right now, remember, there's going to be people who don't like you. Are you, are you aiming that? Yeah. You see, you, you, um, you might have differences of opinions from people. However, gathering together in God's name, that's how we help people be conformed into the image of God. This is his means of grace for you. This is how he wants you to grow. This is how uh, you are to become more holy. This is how you're to become more loving, is by gathering together. Friends, you can get a good sermon on a laptop, okay? But what you can't get is biblical community there. Like, you can get very inspiring worship, you know, listening to the Gettys on your iPod or, or your iPhone. But what you can't get there is this transformative, beautiful thing that happens here. You can't get stirred to love and good works just listening to worship on your iPhone. It takes coming to a purple building. It takes shaking hands with people. It, it, it takes time. It takes uh, chit-chat. It takes more than chit-chat, Right? It takes overcoming some of these social anxieties that we all have. But Jesus spilt his blood. He tore open that curtain for more than just getting into heaven. He atoned for your sins so that you could regularly gather together with your church family. I'm, I'm sometimes asked, well, how often am I supposed to gather? I, I wish I had an algebraic formula for you on that, okay? I don't. All, all the, my answer is you ought to be here more than you're not. That, that's the best I, I can tell you. You ought, to, you ought to be a regular attender here. But, but I, don't, I don't fully know what that means. I know that there's exceptions to that. I know all of that. But, but if you're only periodically attending, and if you're not speaking to others, then you're not going to be known. You're not going to know others. And then there is no way that you can fulfill these commands. It's just impossible to fill these. So being here most Sundays is essential to your spiritual health. I think God's plainly saying that. I think he's saying that this is his will for you. This means uh, this means of grace is essential for anyone who, who, is, who is loved by God. This, this is essential for you to carry out good works. If you just kind of pick and choose what you're going to be part of, and then you put up all these other walls to these other it's not going to lead to a life that is more loving and, and, and a life that is marked by more good works. So, so we're called to gather together. And further, we're called to help people who we haven't seen in a while to then come back and gather together. Like all of us collectively, like Hebrews is not just written to pastors and elders and staff members. Hebrews is written to all of us to say, you, you, you're to participate in this when you haven't seen somebody for four weeks and five weeks and six weeks. Uh, we're supposed to call them and say, brother, sister, I, I miss you. You're doing okay. Like, like you need to be here. We, we need you here. You, like, like, you need to be here. You, you need to make that case for why they're to be in Christian community in their, in their church. Therefore, spur one another to gather. There's one more thing here. We're to spur one another with encouragement. Look again at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Shock collars and spurs, that, that's not meant to injure, okay? But, but it is uncomfortable. And, and, I, and I think there, uh, this is a good warning to churches to just maintain a positive, encouraging posture in how we do this. 
Like I think some churches can read this and, and it can lead to just a real harsh environment. You know, where we're just nitpicking on all these different things. Like, like this is a call to do this, but we're to do it in a certain way. We're to do it in an encouraging way. And, and frankly, encouragement is actually the goal here. So how we do this really matters. You, you see, spurring is best done when you've done the loving, sacrificial work of doing it right. Are you with me? Like, like anybody can be a Monday morning quarterback. Like it's easy to like, oh, you're doing this, this, and this wrong. Like, like that's easy to do. But, but rarely is that persuasive when you, when you come with, at somebody with that posture, right? But when you kind of come prayed up, you know, and, and you thought through, okay, how do I, how do I say this and, and pick the right time with them? Like that's the loving thing to do. And when people do that, then, then it's actually persuasive. Like it becomes encouraging that they can really hear that. You see, when, when people have uh, needed to stir me up, yet they've done it in an encouraging way, I, I'm able to hear it better. Am I the only one on that? I had an uh, incident a, no, a number of years ago at, at a, another church, and it was, um, it, it was a real neat season in the life of the church. And, and I was kind of the number two in the church. So I had all these different categories of ministries that I was overseeing. The church was in a season of growth, and, and it was just it was fun. We were starting a lot of small groups, and, um, and it, it was just an exciting time. And, but we had this uh, young adult group that was just like, you know, just a very small group. Then it went to a very big group. And we started uh, bringing in some of the, the uh, older Christians in the church just to know them and speak to them. They wanted to, to know everybody. And we did this kind of series on relationships. And we asked one of the elders and his wife to, to come speak to the young adult and just talk about marriage and, and how do you have a healthy marriage? How do, you, uh, you know, how do you do relationships the right way? And they came in and did a great job. And they were real transparent. And everyone was very ministered to that night. And we thank them. Everybody thanked them. They went on their way. And about a month later, I, I get an email from this elder, and, and he, he wanted to talk. Now, it's one of those, one of those emails, where, hey, can we meet? And it wasn't like, about what? And by the way, if you send me an email with that, I'm freaking out. Can you just tell me what it is? Okay. It was one of those emails, okay? Like, what am I stepping into? And so, filled with anxiety and prayer leading up to it. And so, we go, and we sit down, and this is a brother uh, older than me, He's very respectful. That's how he went about it. I mean, he led with, Mike, I love you. You're doing a great job. I'm so thankful you're one of our pastors. And, and the more it went, the more nervous I got. But so kind in how he did it. And then he said, um, but I, I want you to know that we've been upset that you didn't, you didn't thank us for coming to the group. And I felt, well, I apologized quickly. And then I was thinking, wait a second. I thanked him that night. The whole group thanked him. Like, what? And I said, well, hey, I, maybe I'm missing something. But I, I remember thanking you that night. And, and, I, and I remember all the kids in the group thanking you. And he goes, yeah, but, but you didn't write us a thank you note. <laughs> now, you might think that's crazy if you're maybe 40 and under. But I heard my dad in that moment. You see, when I felt called into ministry, I went to dad and said, hey, I think God's calling into ministry. He did two things. He said, you need to go to seminary and I want to pay for it. And then about a week later, he showed up at my apartment and he had this box. And inside this box was just a bunch of thank you cards and envelopes. And he had put my name on it in a, in a little verse. And he said, Mike, when you go into ministry, you're going to ask volunteers to do a lot of different things. And, and you, you need to create the habit of just being grateful and thanking people for things. Now, you're probably thinking, I've done a lot around here and I've never had a thank you note. I'm sorry. But in that moment, 
man, I could hear my dad saying, mm-hmm. And like, and, but in that moment, the, the point is, is I really heard him. I really heard what he was saying. And you know why? Because he did the loving thing of, of coming at it in a really encouraging way. And that enabled me to hear it. So when I'm talking about shocking and spurring, I, I'm talking about that scene that day uh, over lunch where that brother came in such an encouraging way. You see, the way we should stir is to be encouraging. Further, the content of our stirring should be encouraging. So in other words, when people in this church are down, God is calling you to give them hope. When people in this church are struggling, God is calling you to give them support. When people in this church lack confidence, God's calling you to help them trust. Brothers and sisters, are you stirring up others in your church family? Are you doing it in an encouraging way? Are you encouraging your brothers and sisters in Redeemer Church? Well, the last blank here is why. Why are we to do this? Because the day is near, he says in verse 25. The day is drawing near. That's why we're to do this. You, you have a role right now, but when Jesus returns, we're going to be out of time. Jesus is coming. He's setting up his kingdom, and it's going to be glorious. And until he returns, we have a job to do. You, you have a role in this church to stir up one another to love and good works and to gather. Spur one another while you still can. Our friends, are, are you really here? And what I mean by that is, are you really living in community? Is there evidence in your life that you believe the gospel to the degree that you stir up one another? Maybe I can ask it this way. Are you known? Do you know others? Are you developing relationships with this goal of stirring up others? In other words, are you really living in church community? Or are you just doing church? Like, is this just a, a box to check? Is, is this clean and plastic and shallow? Or, or, or are you really investing in people's lives and allowing others to invest in you? Brothers and sisters, trust God enough to be stirred up by His body. And hear me, just because someone hurts you in the past, don't hide from people in the present. If that's you, know that you're in a room full of people that that's their story. Most people that I know have some form of church hurt, okay? Someone didn't treat you the way that they should, but don't let those, those past hurts cause you to hide from people in the present. Stick around, talk with people, join the church, attend a small group, come to events, share prayer requests. Further, love is body enough to help stir up others. What I mean by that is, do you have people in this church, in this room, that you're intentionally ministering to right now? Is there someone you're praying for right now where, where, where they need help doing good works? Have you not seen someone in a while? Is there someone that you're thinking of right now that, you know, I haven't seen them in like six weeks now. Where are they? And, and are, do you have a plan to reach out to them? Are you gathering up God's people because you see how important it is uh, for, for them to be here? Who are you taking under your wing? Who needs encouragement in this, this church body today? I'm part of uh, Gen X. I'm a 90s kid. And since the 1990s, I've gotten into some goofy stats this week, but since the 1990s, cigarette use and alcohol use for teenagers is, is way down, okay? 
related uh, teen drunk driving accidents are, are way down. Uh, teen drunk, uh, uh, drunk driving arrests are way down. Since the 90s, uh, teen pregnancy rates are also way down. So kids, if you're part of Gen Z, congratulations, Dr. Caswell's diagnosis is, is that you're better than your parents, okay? <laughs> Way to go. We're very proud of you. However, however, what has sharply risen amongst this generation of young people is anxiety, depression, and suicide. The New York Times is in the middle of a, a series of, of articles where they're talking about just the, the devastating um, mental health crisis, crisis that's happening amongst students and young adults. And, and listen, that, that was there before the pandemic, but, but it's, it's worse after the pandemic, right? I mean, all of those numbers are going up. And, and it's really fascinating that this series of articles New York Times, and they're, they're looking at New York itself. I mean, the largest city in our country. Like, there's people all over the place bumping into you even, you know, when you go there. Like, there's people everywhere, and there's just this epidemic of just loneliness in that city. Like, young people all over the city are just starved for relationship. They're in the middle of millions of people, and they don't have any good friends. Loved ones, I don't have all the answers to the problems of our generation. However, I do know that God loves you enough that he shed his blood on the cross. And he did it because he wants you to be loved and he wants you to be holy, carrying out these good works. And further, he's so committed to that that he shed his blood to bring you into a church community where people are going to spur you to that. That's how much he cares that you're loved and that you're holy. And he's calling you to participate in that. He's not calling you to be a spectator of that. He's calling you to participate and also stirring up others to love and good works. He's calling you not just to be part of a Bible study or be part of a charity. He's calling you to a church family. He tore open the curtain so that you could stir up one another. The, the way he wants you to be loved, the way he wants you to be encouraged to do good works is for people in your church to stir you up to do that. And further, they need you to do the same. Amen? We, we need you to participate in this. And again, charities, Bible studies, those things are great and those things are glorious and we need them. But he died for you to live in church community, in a church family. He died so that uh, he could love you through this church family. He, he died so that this church family could stir you up to be more holy and to carry out greater good works. He wants you here. In other words, we need you. Like we need you here and you need us. That's the relationship here. This isn't just something to get some sort of nugget of good thoughts. This isn't a fortune cookie moment. Like we need you and you need us. When you're not here, it leads to isolation and loneliness. When you're not living in community, it can lead to anxiety and depression. Not gathering together regularly leads to an unloving life and an unholy life. That means that you need us. But brothers and sisters, hear me. I need you. We need you. We need you to be here. We need you to encourage us. We need you to spur us on to love. We need you to spur us on to good works. When we're not here, we need you to call us and reach out to us and spur us to gather and not slip away. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has died in order for us to stir up one another to love and good works, in order to spur us on to be here, 
to be more loving, to be more holy, to be more like Him. He died in order for you to stir up one another, to gather together. You need us and we need you. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this reminder. And I think all of us regularly need this reminding that we need each other and that you purchase us to be part of a church family. None of us are ever going to do this in a perfect way. But Lord, I do pray that we would be faithful to live in community with each other, that we would be faithful to stir one one another up to love and good works, that we would reach out to those who are slipping away. May we be a church that just abandons the real plastic, shallow Christianity of the past. It's just marked by chit-chat about the cowboys. But that we would intentionally chit-chat in order to go deeper, in order to love deeper, to know deeper, and to encourage each other to love and holiness. Lord, may we really feel that burden that this church needs each and every one of us, and each and every one of us needs this church. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.